Welcome, Modern War listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moralty. Today on the podcast, we'll be interviewing Major General Retired Robert Scales, former Commandant of the U.S. Army War College and author of Scales on War. We'll talk to him about the concept of tactical overmatch and how to improve our infantry soldiers and formations for future conflict. As always, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of respected participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. Please make sure you take the time to review this podcast and rate us on iTunes. And make sure to check out mwi.usma.edu for additional content, blogs, op-eds, as well as MWI reports and other thinking on modern war. So, Gerald Scales, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to come out and talk to us. Thanks, Jake. Glad to be here. I wanted to lead off with a little bit kind of general overview of, of what you talk about in your book. Your book focuses a lot on the experience of the infantry and then how to improve their effectiveness on the battlefield. Um, and I'm curious as what you see as being unique to the infantry experience and then what we need to do to improve that experience, whether it's technologically or training-wise or whatever else needs to happen. Yeah, well, the Army in many ways is like any other bureaucratic institution. And the vast majority of the jobs that are, that most soldiers perform are no different than the jobs that, uh, an employee in a large company would, would do. I mean, the Army has bakers and drivers and mechanics and medics and, and IT technicians and so forth. The one thing that sets the Army apart not only from any other service but uh, the rest of society is there's a small percentage of the army about 15 percent whose sole purpose is to go out every day and kill or be killed uh, as the saying goes to close with and destroy the enemy uh, and this small cadre this band of brothers uh, uh, has a has a separate and distinct function and why this is important uh, for our listeners, is that even though the infantry, and I would put in the cavalry and the armor in that same uh, category, the reason they are important is is they set the values and ethics of the larger institution by what they do and how well they do it. You know, there's the old, you've heard many of these things uh, uh, folks talk about in the Marine Corps, every Marine is a rifleman, meaning that every Marine, even though he may fix airplanes, uh, at the core of his soul is this idea that he can defend himself with the rifle. Um, we talk in the Army about the warrior ethos. Well, the warrior ethos doesn't come from a defect manager. It comes from a guy uh, who's part of a small unit or a small team that goes out every day with the intention of closing with and destroying the enemy. So even though the infantry is a small part of the Army, it becomes its sort of moral uh, anchor point or its soul. And as the infantry goes, so goes the fate of the service. The combat force, especially the infantry, the army, the cavalry, those those type of guys, how does their culture influence our current army culture, do you feel like? Well, I think the way it influences this, the culture is really twofold. Uh, number one, most soldiers pattern their behavior and uh, uh, base their ethics on those who do this intimate killing. Uh, therefore, 
that piece of the army that that establishes the ethics and acts as sort of a sort of a moral uh, magnet for all of our soldiers is the infantry. The second is that, you know, for better or for worse, those who lead the army are inordinately from this small institution. Virtually every chief of staff of the army in my lifetime uh, who um, uh, led the army have been from this warrior caste, and it trickles all the way down through the chain of command in the, in the general officer ranks. So those we accept into the close combat arms and those who we train over the decades ultimately will be the force that determines the character of the army. That's why it's so important to get this function right. So given the overall experience that you talked about uh, in terms of infantry and armor uh, and those folks, how has that experience changed over the course of the last 15 years or so? based on the wars that we've been fighting? I think wars over the last 15 years have done two things. Number one is they have made the job of a close combat soldier far more complex. Uh, In my dad's era in World War II, the so-called Willie and Joe era, Willie and Joe being those cartoon characters drawn by Bill Malden in World War II, were essentially the sad sacks that sat um, in a, water-filled foxhole uh, waiting to be screwed uh, uh, by their officers or uh, killed by the enemy. Today, it's a far more complex world that the infantrymen uh, operate in. They they have to be able to uh, commune with alien populations. They have to be able to uh, uh, profile the enemy to determine who's good and who's bad. They have to be able to conduct civil military operations. In addition, within the small unit, uh, because many of our small units are so isolated on the battlefield, they have to perform uh, non-infantry tasks within the unit. They have to be medics. They have to be mechanics. They have to be able to operate radios over long distances. And they have to be intelligence officers. Many times they have to learn how to speak the language in order to get along with the indigenous population. So the infantry today is is fundamentally different in terms of what they have to do. The other fact about infantry <clears throat> over the last 15 years is is they've really become the canaries in the coal mine. Um, the closest the Army ever came to breaking in these two wars was in 2006 when we suddenly woke up one morning and discovered we have too much close combat to do and too few soldiers to do it. And you can't just manufacture a close combat soldier overnight, particularly during wartime. And so this small band of brothers that who were uh, fighting to survive on the battlefield were also fighting to survive back home because oftentimes the dwell time, the interval between combat tours was measured in months rather than years. And they became an overused commodity. So they were expected to do more and also overused, and the sum of those two oftentimes is a branch of the military that simply gets to the point where it can no longer cope. So given those two sort of major changes that you highlighted about the infantry experience and how it's changed over the last 15 years, I want to tie that to one of the big themes of your book, which is tactical overmatch. And I'm curious how you how you see the changing complexity of the environment yeah. and part of the the emotional and physical struggle of being deployed constantly and and 
little time at home and, and those sorts of things, how that plays into our ability as, as a force to conduct uh, small unit tactics and achieve that tactical overmatch. Yeah, one of the tenets of the American way of war is that Americans should never have to fight fair. The reason for that is because America's vulnerable center of gravity, that which causes us to lose wars, or at least to walk away from wars, is dead Americans. And so the infantry are, are, are probably the only close combat force uh, that we have that too often is engaged in fair fights. By fair fights, I mean closing with <clears throat> the Taliban or, or ISIS or any other enemy uh, into some close and darkened space where our technology, uh, um, our overwhelming wealth uh, no longer gives us an advantage. And so the casualty figures or the casualties that we suffer oftentimes are proportionate to those of the enemy. Now, don't get me wrong. The soldiers that we put in the field today are vastly better than the infantry. And they're probably in many ways better than any infantry formation we've fielded in our history. It's not the point. The point is, it's not enough to be better than the enemy. We have to be dominant when compared to the enemy so that we don't face the prospect of a fair fight and we don't suffer inordinate casualties to achieve our objective. I mean, if you look at the air and sea services, they've had virtually nobody die over the last uh, since uh, uh, since the end of Vietnam, a few, but not many. Vast majority of those who die are infantry. So it just seems to me that if infantry are the ones who overwhelmingly are engaged in a fair fight, if they're overwhelmingly the ones who are going to be killed by the enemy, and if dead Americans are our vulnerable center of gravity, then why shouldn't we as a nation do more to keep alive those that are who are most likely to die? It just seems to me that's infinitely logical. So in order to avoid the fair fights that you're talking about, how do we go about outfitting or training our small unit formations to ensure that they have that tactical overmatch? That's a great question, Jake. And the answer is that much of what I'm about to describe uh, is it Star Wars. It's not stealth or precision. It's more like, I don't know, popular mechanics uh, things that we can do easily and cheaply and quickly to provide overmatch uh, can be done uh, uh, virtually overnight. And it's also cheap, <laughs> the things that make our infantrymen better. And let's just go down a few of the categories that, that I think uh, apply here. First of all, 51% of all of Americans killed in combat with the enemy are killed trying to find the enemy. That's in things like movements to contact, IED ambushes, booby traps, and uh, snipers. Well, if that's so, then every small unit should have the ability to sense and see the enemy, either from above or from within the unit, out to a range of 400 meters for individuals and 1,000 meters for groups. If we were able to do that using principally drones and body sensors, then we would no longer have these horrible stories of units being caught in an L-shaped ambush and and, uh, and and being annihilated. The second has to do with a soldier's load. We always talk about a mechanized army, and much of our army is mechanized, and that's wonderful. Uh, but the problem is that the enemy hides in places where mechanized machinery doesn't work. 
because he knows that and he he wants to win. And so if you're going to close with and destroy the enemy in inhospitable places, you have to reduce the soldier's load as he gets close to the enemy. There's a there's an old saying that uh that a soldier will remain effective in combat if he carries no more than one third his body weight, which for an average soldier is about sixty pounds. But today soldiers carry in excess of a hundred pounds on their back when they close with and destroy the enemy. So there ha- the army needs some simple, cheap relatively high-tech means of unburdening himself. Now, one of the solutions is always to make stuff lighter. But you can't do that if part of your ensemble is body armor. I mean, when you if your limit is 60 pounds and you start off carrying 30 pounds, half of that in rifle and body armor and helmet, you have to unburden the soldier. You have to unburden the soldier some other way. And the third thing has to do with touch. Um, soldiers today, unlike soldiers of my era, are often separated uh, from each other, from their buddies, and they're often in inhospitable places, and they're often isolated and alone. And we've learned from thousands of years of the study of history that soldiers are resilient where they're in close combat because they can feel or see their buddy and talk to their buddy who's standing next to them. And units usually break in combat not when they suffer casualties, but when they have this emotional or moral decline. The way you prevent that is called palliation. The way you prevent palliation in combat is you allow the soldiers to connect with each other and to stay connected with them. You build a communications network, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. And if we could do that, if we could connect soldiers, perhaps as well as teenagers connect each other with their with their uh, uh, social networks and their devices. That would make a soldier more confident that he's going into alone and uh, going into combat uh, and he's not alone. And the final thing I'd offer, and there are others, but the other thing I would offer is the importance of small arms. For whatever reason, we spend $105 million for every fighter plane we make. And we're unwilling to spend $750 to arm close combat soldiers, infantrymen, with a weapon they have confidence in, a weapon that will cycle through 10, 15,000 rounds, which oftentimes a soldier is faced with, infantry soldier is faced with in close combat without it jamming. And it's not about the weapon jamming, which is bad enough, but it's about the idea that if a soldier knows he has in his hands a piece of equipment that's much better than the enemy's, and the enemy knows that, that changes the psychological balance of the battlefield. And the soldier realizes that he's dominant in the close fight because his weapons are better. Not just small arms, but but uh, high-tech stuff as well. Anti-tank weapons, uh, anti-aircraft weapons, uh, um, uh, explosive devices, machine guns, uh, sensors, all the stuff that he carries on his back. If all of that's better than the enemy's, then he knows when he closes with the, the enemy, uh, he's going to win. And when you know you're going to win, you pretty much have already won before the first battle is fired, or the first bullet's fired. So you talked a lot about <clears throat> what I would kind of term technological or, or material solutions. Are there other training things that we yeah. should be focusing on to help really give our, our squads, platoons, and companies the, the tactical overmatch that we're looking for? Yeah, that's a great question, Jake. You know, there's this old saying that, that the Navy and the Air Force man the equipment and the Army equips the man. Uh, it's not so 
important in the army about what you put on the soldier, but what you put in the soldier. And that's certainly true here. I think the greatest single uh, leap ahead technology that we can apply to make our soldiers dominant on a future battlefield is what we put in them. You know, I invented the term, gosh, what, almost 25 years ago, the human dimension, because I realized that we beat the Iraqis in the Gulf War in part because our equipment was better, but more importantly because our people were better. And, and what's happened since then over the last 25 years is the human culture and behavioral sciences have grown so much in this country and learned so much about many factors of the human enterprise that we can make soldiers better. We can make them better. We can inure them to the hardships of combat. We can isolate them against traumatic brain injury and PTSD. We can make them better decision makers in close combat. We can help them with issues like um, uh, intuition and profiling and the ability to sense and see the battlefield. And none of this is expensive. You know, I use as an example the whole idea about Top Gun. Top Gun, the Navy's program uh, for training fighter pilots, basically what it does is it gives Navy fighter pilots their first four close combat missions against a real enemy. Give it to them for free. Uh, we learned in Vietnam that 96% of all shootdowns over North Vietnam were suffered uh, in the first four missions. Well, it's the same thing in the Army. Uh, if in my generation in Vietnam, 80% of all those killed in a small unit were killed in the first two months of their tour. So what if we gave our young soldiers the first two months free, bloodlessly? I mean, today, uh, for small units, squads, platoons, teams, um, the natural leaders, the intuitive decision makers, those who are good at this small unit stuff, generally aren't discovered till they get in their first combat action. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So why don't we have a means, why don't we have a top gun for small units and small unit leaders that allows them to shake themselves out and determine who's got this right stuff uh, before the first shot is fired? You know, the great German philosopher, Mulkey once says that an army that learns to fight by fighting loses. So we need to have a means through the use of virtual simulation, offshoots of our commercial gaming industry, the use of virtual reality, which is so common in places like the uh, National Football League. We need to take those technologies, apply them to our soldiers. So a soldier, before he goes to his first close combat action, may have been immersed in a realistic uh, simulation that that is accountable to his actions a thousand times. Let's say you had a thousand close combat engagement, each one of them different, uh, before you went into your first uh, firefight. Don't you think you'd be better? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the question I have then is, I mean, that's that's a whole suite of things that we discussed from the technological side to the, the training side. Um, what does that look like? In terms of the larger force, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there uh, to unpack. But is, is it a matter of restructuring the equipment in a in a company or a platoon? Is it changing our training cycle, which currently, as at least in terms of my career, hasn't changed <clears throat> in the ten years that I've been in? Where you you know, there's a progression to an NTC or JRTC, and then you deploy. Um, does the army require some sort of functional or structural change to, to enact what you're talking about. Okay, two points. You know, Lennon once said that quantity has a quality all of its own. 
And the closer you get down to the tactical fight and you shift away from strategic and operational types of engagement, the more numbers count. Um, if the Taliban has a 100 soldiers and you have 12, your better equipment will certainly make you more effective. But it's still 100 against 12. And, and in the small unit level, uh, material dominance is great, but numerical dominance is more important. Therefore, we have to increase the size, the heft, the weight of our close combat forces proportional to uh, the other forces that we employ. Look, Jake, in wars in the past, with the possible exception of Desert Storm, we never run out of ships. We never run out of planes. We never run out of missiles. We never run out of satellites. And seemingly, war after war after war, we run out of close combat forces. So number one is we need to build more. We need to overman close combat forces. Look, as, as, as you know yourself, soldiers don't get to the front lines often for things unrelated to combat. It could be disease, sickness in the family. It could be disciplinary problems. Remember in Vietnam, a 750-man infantry battalion rarely had a foxhole strength over 4, 400. So what this means is you have to be able to overstaff because anytime you get a small unit, a nine-man squad, that's one-third missing you lose more than one-third of combat capability because you lose that flexibility and bonding and the ability to maneuver and, and lay down a, a, a base of fire simply because you don't have the soldiers enough to do it. That's number one. Number two, we have to completely change the way we do training and preparation for war. Look, we're, we're in an era now where a soldier can become a part of this band of brothers, this small unit, literally from the day he gets off the bus at the training center to the day he leaves his first term of service four or five years later. We need to do that. Uh, we still have a World War II type of mass training uh, establishment that has been with us for 75 years, and it was perfectly valid when we had an 8 million man army. It's not so valid anymore when we have a 450,000 man army because we're building an army of boutique soldiers, not an army of Willie and Joe. And therefore, each small unit in the army must be treated, I would say, like you treat an NFL team. You know, if you, National Football League, they pay a lot for these guys in their offense, defense, and special teams, and they have specialized equipment, they have specialized coaches, they are paid very well. And the downside for the NFL, as soon as you hear footsteps behind you and you lose a step as a, as a wide receiver, some other dude is going to come back or, and, and take your place. And it should be the same for close combat. We should create a body of close combat soldiers that are not only well-trained, uh, but are also treated uh, as a special exempted entity. The other thing is, if you have five tours in Vietnam, or five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, that's a little different than having five tours in the Pentagon. So we need to recognize and treat differently those who have to suffer the hardships of close combat. Uh, we need more in each unit. They ought to be of a higher rank. They ought to be multi-skilled. They ought to be superbly well-trained. Uh, their uh, pre-deployment evaluation should be eliminative. So if a young squad leader, after 
um, six, seven months as a squad leader when he's immersed in a simulation can never seem to make the right mistakes when the bullets fly over his head, then somebody else has got to stand up and take his place before he gets other members of his squad killed. And we can do this. We can, if we put the emphasis and the money, uh, into small units, we can turn a superior force of small units into a dominant force of small units, make a huge difference in how we fight our wars. So I glommed on to the, the concept of the boutique soldier and the boutique unit. And I'm curious how, because this is a big argument in the army currently <clears throat> about what level of war or where along the spectrum of war we should be focusing our efforts. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious how the concept of tailored units and, and more specialized units jibes with the potential that the army has used across the entire spectrum yeah, that's... As, the, as the basic arm of government to do those sorts of things. That's a great question. If I knew the answer, um, I would be running for office. And the answer is, I don't know. But here's the thing. Nobody knows. Uh, we're like 0 for 10 in our ability to forecast who we're going to fight, where we're going to fight, the conditions under which we're going to fight, and how long and how lethal the war is going to be. We don't know. Um, and all of the gurus inside the Beltway who stand up and pontificate about we need these types of soldiers and this type of material because we're going to fight this type of war have almost universally been wrong. Even if they get the war right, then the nature and character of the war changes right under their noses. So in the March to Baghdad, it was George S. Patton's ghost that was leading them forward. Three years later, we were in these same soldiers and same leaders were engaged in a counterinsurgency that we almost lost, and the ghost of Patton was no longer on the battlefield. So the idea of building a specialized army is ridiculous. We have to think in terms of building discrete molecular units. Uh, in this case, small units, that would be squads, platoons, teams, whatever the right phrase is for these superbly trained, that are capable of operating across the whole spectrum of combat. Now, obviously, you'd have to chop off the high-end thermonuclear war. You'd probably have to chop off the extreme low-end, which belongs uh, 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 more to, to um, uh, civilian agencies. But the great glob in the middle, the great 85% of the middle, uh, we should build small units that can, that with very little additional training, should be able to fit nicely into the niches that and, and do the tasks that they're required to do once they deploy. Now, upper-level stuff is a different question. You need a different command for counterinsurgency, for hybrid warfare, for uh, near-peer and peer warfare. I got that. We can do that. But if each of the building blocks that I've described to you is superbly uh, trained and inured uh, for a wide spectrum of combat, then once they're plugged in there, even if you make bad decisions at the operational and the strategic level, the quality of the forces at the bottom will make up for it. What's the old saying? The old quote is that uh, bad strategy can never be, uh, you can't make up with bad strategy for good units, uh, and, and I, with good units, uh, and I think that's true. But good small units can help mitigate 
uh, bad decision making at the operational and strategic level. Because I'll guarantee you, if you're the greatest strategist in the world with the greatest war fighting aim, and you have bad small units, bad soldiers at the molecular level, it doesn't matter how great you are, you're still going to lose. That's actually a per- perfect segue into my next question. I want to take a step back and tie what we're talking about to to the strategic level because, again, I know I've heard it as as an Army officer time and time again about some of our more recent wars where we can win every firefight, but we end up in a state of either quagmire or stagnation or outright loss in the larger operational strategic picture. Uh, and I'm curious how the concept of tactical overmatch that you're discussing and ensuring that our small units are the best they can possibly be ties to the greater strategic picture. Yeah, well, now we're shifting into politics, something that makes me uncomfortable. But let me just say this, that regardless of the force that you build, uh, what we've learned over the last 15 years is that the decision to go to war uh, is one that carries with it enormous uncertainty and risk. Once you unleash the gods of war, you have no idea where this is going to take you. So a, a nation, any nation, not just us, but any nation, needs to make the decision to put the lives of young men and women at risk very carefully and to think of the second and third order consequences of the decision they're going to make. We say that we are a country that is... Uh, that uh, that goes to war very reluctantly and infrequently. The truth is that's just not true. Uh, we do. But here's the second thing that makes your question so important. And that's that back in the days of World War II, back in the big machine age of warfare that we loved so much, there was a strong separation between the tactical and the strategic. Um, the war, uh, the army that we put on the field against Saddam Hussein was essentially a big arrow army. It was an army that had, that would have made Patton happy. And therefore the tactical and the strategic were separated by this great blue arrow that we all felt really good about. But what the last 15 years has taught us is that the enemy has a vote. The enemy can't do operational maneuver. The enemy can't confront us on the air, sea, and space. So the enemy changes the complexion of the combat and forces it into the tactical. So what's happened is, almost unnoticed, is that we see a creep closing between the tactical and the strategic, and we see the operational slowly being squeezed out. And what's so interesting is we're not the ones who are doing this. I mean, look at the Russians. If you've been watching the Russians in Georgia, the Crimea, the Ukraine, and elsewhere, Vladimir Putin's got a what a, a, a almost two million man military, eight hundred thousand uh, army uh, soldiers in a conscripted army, but he only uses about sixty thousand, and they're tactical forces. They're basically infantrymen, Minister of the Interior. Uh, 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 Spetsnaz, GRU, uh, FSB, Naval Infantry, Special Forces and Elite Infantry Units. Who are these people? They're infantry. And what are they used for? How does he use them? He uses them to achieve strategic ends. You see what I'm saying? There's no grand operational movement in the eastern Ukraine. It's done because he he, Putin understands what our vulnerabilities are. 
And that's the willingness to close with and destroy the enemy in today's environment. So he fills that void with his own soldiers. So while we return to an army that's going to hopefully go back to Big Arrow on a map, we have to remember that the enemy doesn't really want to do that. And you have to meet the enemy where he is if he threatens your centers of gravity. And you simply can't drag a sledgehammer around to smash every gnat you see in the world and think you're going to win. Because as we learned over the last 15 years, that's not going to happen. So at this point, I think, I think we've reached a point in the conversation where we can, we can talk about, because we're at West Point, how this maybe applies to cadets and junior officers that are going to be leading <clears throat> these small unit uh, formations. So I'm curious what, if I am a cadet graduating from West Point 2017, what my expectation <clears throat> should be or how I personally am going to be involved in ensuring not only the tactical overmatch piece, but also preventing some of the army breakage that, that you've discussed uh, in your book. You know, one of the joys I had when I was a firstie here at West Point is I, for the first time in my life, I guess, I had time to think. Uh, and between many hours of walking the area and confinement, uh, it gave me an opportunity to think about my future. Remember, we were the first big Vietnam class. We were the oftentimes called Tet class. More of my classmates were killed in uh, Vietnam 31, I think, than in any class in West Point history. So we knew what we were getting ourselves into. Right. And you graduated in 66, right, 66. sir? 66. Yeah, has a book written about us called The Long Gray Line. But here's the thing. We didn't. We didn't know that. Part of it was our fault. We wanted to go into a branch that maybe our dads went in. Or we wanted to go into a branch where we had uh, we wanted to go into a air defense artillery because we had a really cool date at Fort Bliss. I mean, the ability of us to select uh, our future prof uh, 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 profession or branch was uh, was really poorly done. Uh, and this mismatch between what you want to do and what you were skilled at and capable of doing got many of my classmates killed. Why? Well, just because your father was a two-star general and an infantryman, and you were the fourth-generation West Pointer who was graduating and you wanted to go into infantry. Well, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> and so the advice I give to young cadets is that there is nothing out there that that's able to tell with 100% certainty that when you graduate from West Point, you have the skills and the personal attributes and the psychological um, the, the psychological conditioning to be a good small unit close combat leader. Uh, we need to do a better job. In fact, you need to do a better job, to my mind, of counseling young cadets and let them and coach them through this preparation phase so that they fit what they want to be with what they are emotionally, physically, and psychologically prepared to be you got to fit the cadet and the young officer with the skill set rather than vice versa. Now, if you if you think you're going to be a good signal officer and it turns out you're really a better lawyer, that's fine. You lose some time 
uh, and, and that's unfortunate. But if you think you're going to be a great infantry officer and you don't know how to do intuitive decision making, you don't know how to lead at the small level, if any of that happens, your mistake and your bad judgment and your poor decision is going to get dozens of young soldiers killed and wounded. So this is your senior year at West Point and your first formative few months of going through young officer training is critical. And somebody in your chain of command needs to be something other, have some other tools other than looking at you and listening to you talk to determine where you belong in this uh, in this army of ours. But I just wish the Army had better tools to be able to make those assessments before you put into a field, put at the head of a platoon, and you, and you fail and soldiers get killed. That's not right. All right, sir. I think that's the last question I had for you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Well, thanks a lot, Jake. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership.